0: We're resuming our march through the Psalms, as we do every summer, or have for a few summers now. And this morning brings us to Psalm 28. And, and, you know, the the repeated turning to a new Psalm every week, uh, I think one of the things I'm learning to appreciate as we continue to keep coming back to a new Psalm uh, every week is uh, that it is a demonstration for us. It is teaching us what it looks like. Uh, when God responds, how God responds to the articulation of our fears. Uh, you know, articulate, articulating your fear requires its own kind of courage. Uh, it, it, it requires courage sometimes to just put a, a voice to it and name it for what it is. Uh, it requires courage sometimes because of what it reveals about us. It might reveal some weaknesses in us or it could reveal... Of our own sin doesn't always, but it could, and, and even much more so, sharing your fears with another person uh, requires courage because we don't know how it will be received. Uh, I have done this, I know others have done this uh, that, that we could dismiss each other's fears kind of casually, uh, and that can lead to pain. Uh, time and time again, one of the things that we see repeatedly as we march our way through the Psalms is how God responds to the articulation of the fears of our heart with such grace and such tenderness. And Psalm 28 is no exception. This is David, king of all Israel, bringing the concerns of his heart to bear before the Lord. Let's look together. This is Psalm 28. I'll read verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock... Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song, I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we are gathered here before you, uh, We have said things about you to each other. We have sung to you. We have prayed to you. Uh, We have confessed our sins and heard of your grace. And now uh, we gather under the authority of your word and ask that we hear from you. And as we hear from you, would you show us your son, Jesus? Would you please do that? Show us your son. Show us your mercy and your love and the joy that we have before you. Would you help me to love these friends well, uh, to speak in fidelity with who you are, and Holy Spirit, would you please be at work in this place, uh, speaking to us about what is true. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a friend recently uh, made me aware of a podcast, and I think it's a pretty new podcast. Um, It had an interesting title. Uh, The title was How to Talk to People. And... uh, I thought it odd that my friend would just send me this podcast with no explanation of like why he would feel the need to send me a podcast saying how to talk to people, but he did. Thought he might have been sending a little, kind of like when you give somebody a piece of gum, it's nice, but you're also sending a message, right? And I had to get over that. Um, But it it was actually a really fascinating podcast. uh, uh, It's a, a group of people gathered together making really verifiable, quantifiable observations. We've heard them uh, through the years about how we have become more disconnected to each other, uh, that we're kind of atomized as a community. Simple relationships with normal people have only gotten harder. And one of the things that that has made hard is just the ability to have normal conversations with other people. I think that's the, the main thesis. I need to listen to more of it, but I think this is the main thesis that they offered They said the individualism that's so central to American culture can make it hard for people to make the deep connections they want. It's not that they don't want to connect. It's that they lack the tools to connect. Uh, Now, I don't know how that hits you. You may feel that deeply. You may not at all, Uh, and that's okay. But it seems to me that when God loaded up his word with a bunch of psalms, uh, one of the things he was doing was giving us essential tools to nurture our relationship to him in sweet times, but also in particular with this psalm in difficult times. This psalm looks like a lot of other psalms in that it begins with the articulation of fear and it ends with the articulation of faith. It's the kind of movement or trajectory we see that in a lot of psalms. And if point A is fear and point B is faith, I think what it shows us is that the track that runs between those two points is the growing and nurturing of a relationship with the Lord. Uh, And that's what we see is that we are exploring the nature of David's relationship with God as we look at his movement from from fear to to faith. And so I want to name that in a few different ways. We see it in his approach God. We see it in the way that he entrusts his fears to God. And finally, we see it in the way he enjoys God's embrace. So those are my three points for you. Approach, trust, embrace. Uh, First, you see there's this approach that he makes uh, to the Lord, to you, O Lord, I call. And in his prayer, he seems held by the urgency of the moment, uh, you, it kind of jumps off right there in the first couple of verses. There, there seems to be a real fear that as he comes to the Lord, the Lord might not listen to him. Because it looks like he's begging God to listen to him. I am calling out to you. Please hear me. He says that twice. And so he's, there's an intensity behind the matter that he's bringing to him. And just an urgency that the Lord might hear him. And, and you know what that feels like, don't you? Where, uh, where like you're pointing at something troubling And you're saying, please look at this with me. Like nothing else, nothing else can happen until this is dealt with. But for as much as we see him being held by the urgency with which he's bringing this particular matter before the Lord, you also see a real freedom in how he uh, proclaims his own helplessness apart from the Lord. Uh, If you refuse my call, he says, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Uh, Another way of putting that is without you, I'm lost. I have no abilities or wisdom that can get me out of this mess that I am. And particularly striking to me is that that this is not just a private uh, display of humility or helplessness. This is actually very public. If you look at verse 2, there's a reference to lifting... Your hands, I lift my hands before the, how, what is it? Before the most holy sanctuary. Now that, that was the common posture of God's people who were offering prayers of supplication before the Lord. That The people would gather in corporate worship and they would lift their hands when they would make these prayers. Uh, it was adopted, that was a practice that was adopted by the early Christians in the first century. You see, you actually see an example of it. In 1 Timothy chapter 2. And the most holy sanctuary is almost certainly a reference to the Holy of Holies. Where the Ark of the Covenant was held. And uh, the very presence of God resided there. And so this, this is actually, think about this. This is King David. Lifting his hands in public worship. Declaring out loud before God's people, I have no answers apart from you. He's the one that everybody looks to for answers. And he seems completely free in declaring his helplessness apart from the Lord's help. You know, where else in life do you see this combination of urgency, a feeling sense of urgency, and yet freedom in declaring your own helplessness? I think, I think actually you see it in little children. And, and some of you know this. Uh, some of you are parents of little children, some of your children are grown, but you remember this, all of you were little children at one time. But like when they come up to you, it doesn't matter what you're doing, right? Like it doesn't matter who you're talking to. You may be on the phone or like in an important conversation or trying to concentrate. And when they come to you, they have no problem making their urgency your urgency, right? It's like mom, 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 until you respond, right? And they feel completely free about declaring their own helplessness to you. What, what do you need? I can't tie my shoe. Like, they're stopped. They're, they're completely stopped until this, this happens. Yeah, I think one of the things this is showing us is that when we approach the Lord, David is approaching the Lord like a, like a child goes to his mother or father who he, he, he knows loves him. And he, he knows, hears his cry. I think sometimes that just like bringing our needs before the Lord can be hard for us. We might think our own needs aren't weighty enough or big enough. I only bring the big stuff, you know. Or like when we approach the Lord, it, it might seem to us like it's Esther, you know, going before the king and he has to, she has to earn his favor. And if she doesn't, then there are repercussions, right? This is telling us, the Psalms are repeatedly telling us to come to the Father like a child in all of our neediness, and all of our urgency. That's certainly the image that Jesus puts forward. In Luke chapter 11, after he teaches uh, his disciples the Lord's Prayer, this is what he says. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a scorpion? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a serpent. If you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Holy Spirit give, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Man, God loves to be asked. But he also loves to give. He loves to give to his children. You know, it occurs to me that who we approach with our neediness Assume some measure of trust. Like it requires some kind of understanding of trust as we go to the Lord, right? And I think we see demonstrations of just the way that David trusts the Lord as he brings his neediness to him. You know, every leader, many of you are leaders in various places, some of you in the workplace and other places. Uh, so you know this, but every leader, no matter how noble or ignoble, uh, you, you will always have people who oppose you. That's not new. And I, I bring that up because some prayers have David confessing sin. We see that in several places where he makes his prayers. But some of his prayers have David dealing with the sins of other people. And th- this one is one of those latter. Ones okay, the virtue seems to be on his side, and it seems that uh, that he has his handful hands full with uh, with what he calls in verse three wicked people, he calls them wicked people, and then he goes on to describe who these wicked people are. Look at the description of what they're up to. This, uh, in verse three, they're workers. Of evil. Uh, they seem to be slippery with their work of evil. They speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. So there's like dissimulating speech. They say one thing, but their actions betray something else entirely. Uh, there are many who think, well, many, I don't know, that might be too strong of a word. It's hard to place this psalm in any one era of David's life, but some think because of this. Uh, verse that he's actually talking about that Psalm 26, 27, and 28 came during Absalom's rebellion. His son Absalom uh, won the hearts of the people away from David through his speech, but yet he was working evil out. That's kind of the picture of what David was wrestling with. And his central request is that God would give to them according to what they do, right? That's what he says. And that word work, that word work is an important word here. It's used five times in these next three verses, verses three, four, and five. Uh, He calls them workers of evil. He describes their work in contrast with the works of the Lord mentioned in verse five. So God is accomplishing some kind of work. Their work defies him or opposes him. That's why he calls it wicked or evil. And he asks God to give to them according to the work of their hands. So what... What he's fixated on is what they're producing with their lives. And I lay all that out for you because I think it's important to see what David is doing here. He's saying, give to them their due reward. Just give to them according to what their lives are producing. But what is David not doing? David is not harming them himself. King of Israel, with all kinds of power, he certainly could have. And yet he is praying for God to act justly. He wields all the power, yet he refrains from harming him. Instead, what he's doing is he's turning his anger and his frustration and his fear over to God and asking God to do what he will. I think what we see in this psalm is what it looks like to entrust the deepest troubles of your heart to the Lord and to the one who judges justly. Now that's a scary prayer, isn't it? Like, do we really want to pray that prayer? Because we know that asking the Lord to give someone according to what they do, that, 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 that we also might be given according to what we do. And that's why I think it's interesting that David's plea is that God would make a distinction between him and and these wicked people. He says, do not drag me off with the wicked. Now, we can't know for sure when this story landed in David's life, but this is certainly a song that Jesus could have sung. In fact, these are songs of Jesus. Because um, <clears throat> the way these things point to Jesus's life are just remarkable. When you look at Jesus's life, you see him being publicly accused of all sorts of things. That's like a common refrain: is that he he ends up mixed up with people who say one thing with their words and intend something else entirely. He was accused of being a glutton. He was accused of being an alcoholic. Um, he was also accused of being a friend with shady people that was suspicious people, tax collectors and prostitutes. The Pharisees even accused him of being demon possessed and when he was on trial, he was on trial. He was accused of blasphemy, and they beat him as if he was a, a heretic. I mean he, he suffered under the false accusations of other people and the story that stands out to me the most is uh, when Jesus stood before these religious leaders on trial in Mark chapter 14. The passage says they made all kinds of testimony about him and, the, and, and that their testimony about Jesus didn't even agree with each other. Like, like it gives you this impression that, it, the, that if you were there just watching, you would see ways that they contradicted each other with their testimonies about Jesus. And so he's standing under false accusation, and, and uh, Jesus had all kinds of things he could have said. He had all kinds of arguments that he could have made. He certainly had all kinds of power that he could have exerted, but yet what did he do? He, he stood silently before them all. And later the apostle Peter will tell us that he was entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And the next thing Peter will say, and we use this for our assurance of grace sometimes, this passage, he says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Listen, there is one reason, and one reason only, that we can bring our sins and our fears and entrust them to the Holy Lord. There is one lasting reason that actually attends to our fears with any kind of strength, not because of a plea that we make, but because of a plea that's made for us. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Listen, in verse 2, David is lifting his holy hands, begging for God's help. But right now, Jesus is lifting his scarred hands and making a plea of intercession for you. Do not drag them off with the wicked, he says. Not because of what they have done. Don't give them their due reward. Not because of what they have done, but because of what I have done for them. Let me ask you something. Do you trust, if you're a Christian here this morning, do you trust that that is true for you? Do you trust that? Do you trust that Jesus' blood was shed for you? That his sacrifice is enough? That his forgiveness covers all of your sins? Do you trust that he has secured your end forever? That he said it is finished and it really is finished? Do you trust that? If you do, let me ask you this question. If you can trust him with that, then what can't you trust him with? I ask you that because the rest of the psalm is a picture and what it looks like to rest in the embrace of the Lord. Now, now you you might look at that and say, "Well, they're not hugging each other. Why do you call this an embrace?" Why do you call this an embrace? Well, I call it that because this psalm begins with David's restlessness and it ends with David resting in who God is. And the descriptions of his heart that you see, particularly in verse seven, are the descriptions of a person who has been embraced by God. Just look how how bright this is. In Him, my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. Now, what has God done? Well, what we know is that verse 6 is, is like a, the direct opposite of verse 2. So verse 2, he hear the, the voice of my pleas for mercy. Verse 6, he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. So God hears his prayer, but what else has he done? Uh, it, there's no mention Uh, Of when or in what manner that God has answered his prayer. Perhaps God has acted, or perhaps David is anticipating some future event where God will act, but that doesn't seem to matter here. What matters is that David finds rest, real rest, in knowing that God is on his side, that God himself is his strength and his shield and the saving refuge. I mean, that is Beatific language, the saving refuge of his anointed. And this proclamation is especially profound because he's declaring that there's nowhere he goes and nothing he endures where he doesn't enjoy or benefit from or find rest in the Lord's power, his strength, or the Lord's protection, his shield. Not only that, but he calls the Lord his shepherd. David knew what that meant. David used to be a shepherd. There's there's nothing more intimate, no more intimate way that he could have described his relationship with the Lord than than using this metaphor of a shepherd with his sheep. A shepherd knows his sheep. A good shepherd knows his sheep intimately. And then he says that he is the shepherd who will carry his people forever. Forever from the from the beginning to the very end you know why a shepherd carries his sheep when they run away or when they're broken in some way and what he is saying is that the lord is there's is no end to the lord's supply and it has nothing to do with what david gives back but the lord gives freely to his people He loves his sheep. And I want to give you that because I know Christians, many Christians, and I could put myself in one of them as one of them who enjoy the favor of Jesus but have a hard time enjoying his rest. We trust our end to him, but can we trust our present? Bernard of Clairvaux, we're going to sing one of his hymns in just a minute. He's one of those mystic church fathers. Uh, He he can make some people a little uncomfortable. But he says some great things. And he writes some great hymns. He ministered around the turn of the 11th century. but, uh, But he said this in one of his hymns. He said, Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast. But sweeter far thy face to see. And in thy presence rest. One of my favorites came centuries earlier from Augustine, another one of our church fathers ministering out of North Africa. He said, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Do you know what it means to take your worries, your concerns, your fears to approach the Lord with them, to entrust them to him and understand his embrace? Is Jesus enough for these things such that you find your rest in him? I'm going to close by telling this story. I think this was about 20 years ago and my memory's a little hazy on this, I was a youth director at a church that was, all, it was this older, well-established church, big staff, had a famous counselor coming in to lead a conference, and I'm not going to tell you the, the name of this guy, because it was, uh, it would just be a distra- <laughs> it would just be a distraction, but when you're this young, mid-20s youth director with a bunch of uh, on ministry staff, on an established church, like your whole goal in these meetings is to not say or do anything that's going to embarrass you or anybody else, like that's your job, is you sit there and you keep your mouth shut and you watch and uh, this person comes in, he's meeting with the staff and I'm sitting there and I'm watching and I hear him tell this story about how he was working with a man that was suffering from just a paralyzing anxiety, just real fear. And then he began to tear up and his voice would choke as he described how this man who could barely get out of bed in the morning, much less leave his house, um, began to understand the depths of what it meant to him that Jesus's love for him was as much a present reality as it is a future one. Now, now were, were, were there scientific helps that, that, that were with him, that helped him? Absolutely. Uh, and did he need to relearn what it meant to interact with people and to walk around his neighborhood? Like, did he, did he need all of that? And did he need the help of counselors? Absolutely, all of that. But what this guy was saying was that fundamental to his healing was the growing awareness that he never went anywhere without Jesus' loving or tender attention going with him. And listen, that's my prayer for me. And it's my prayer for you. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. O Lord of all, uh, and Lord of our souls, would you convince us of the truth of this all over again? Would you teach us of the constancy of your love that covers us, protects us, ensures our union with you? Help us, I pray. Be with us in our fears and in our joys, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.